This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Judges. Judges is found, if you've got one of the few Bibles, on page 200. Book of Judges, we're looking tonight at uh, chapter 1, verse 1, up through chapter 2, verse 5. Somewhat lengthy passage, and yet uh, a, a unit. Hear the Word of God. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done So God has repaid me. And so they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kiriath-Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksah, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. 
The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now, the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we'll deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That's its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Elab or Achzib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shabalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. We thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to study your word in this late hour of the day, we pray uh, for mental uh, alertness and physical strength. But this is your word. This is truth. And Father, we pray that you would feed our souls on it. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'd introduce this sermon in this series with a quotation from Ralph Davis. Uh, Ralph Davis taught at RTS, taught Old Testament at RTS, actually before I was there and after I was there. Uh, he also, uh, until recently, was pastor of Woodland PCA in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, my hometown, uh, not the church I was in. I was in First Presbyterian, but another PCA church there in town until his uh, retirement from that church recently. And he writes this about the book of Judges. He says, the church in general has a problem with the book of Judges. 
It's so earthly, so puzzling, so primitive, so violent, in a word, so strange, that the church can scarcely stomach it. As with many Old Testament materials, the sentiment seems to be, if we just study the epistles long enough, maybe it'll go away. The church has her own way of dealing with embarrassing scripture. Ignore it. Yet that's difficult to do with judges. It's so interesting. Only people who take tranquilizers before sitting down can doze off while they read it. So uh, maybe we'll see who's on the meds and who's not tonight. But uh, it is. It's an interesting book. It picks up where Joshua leaves off. We, for some reason, are more familiar with Joshua and the conquest of the promised land uh, not as familiar with Judges, which really kind of tells the rest of the story. Uh, one reason I think maybe we like Joshua and not Judges is Joshua is more of a story of success, whereas Judges seems to fade into a pretty ugly failure. It's a tale of, of a good beginning that dwindles to a bad end. Or to put it in the vernacular, Israel seemed to be a first-half team. Now, as we look at our passage tonight, uh, it really divides into three parts, if you did even just a single word. Victory, failure, and opportunity. So first of all, we want to look at victory, victory with God's help. The first part of the book starts well. It's kind of what we would expect. It really picks up from where Joshua leaves off. And in verses 1 through 21, we see this victory. We see God is at work. It's not... Israel on their own by any means, but it's God at work. We see that he directs them in this venture. Verses 1 and 2, the people inquire of the Lord, who shall go up first against the Canaanites to fight against them. The Lord says, Judah shall go up. Well, why just Judah? Why not all of Israel? Well, if you look at Joshua, Joshua, especially the early chapters, is the taking of the land. It's the initial conquest. It's that almost blitzkrieg-like action of going in and conquering the land. But Judges really envisions more possessing the land. Individual tribes going and clearing out their specific areas and settling in. That's what is supposed to happen. And it starts to happen but then it sort of runs out of steam pretty quickly. The direction is Judah is to go up, have the assurance of the Lord. Verse 2, I have given the land into his hand. Nothing more needs to be said. There's no doubt of the outcome. The Lord says, I have given the land into his hand. It's done in the power of the Lord. Verse 4, Judah went up. The Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And the Lord, as he promised in his covenant, is present with them and to enable them to have success. Verse 19, the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. But interestingly, that expression, he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Well, if it's the Lord of heaven and earth against chariots of iron, the Lord wins. He's not going to be defeated because they had the new super weapon, chariots of iron. Uh, that right there is the first hint that while it's looking pretty good, things are not as good as they seem. But you see the Lord, he's at work. You see how he's helping here. Where do we see God's help here? What's the context? Well, we see God's help in the, in, in the context of uh, what really amounted to sort of a, a crisis uh, or a turning point for Israel. Notice right at the very beginning uh, in verse 1, after the death of Joshua. 
All of this is starting to happen in the context of Joshua's having passed from the scene. Now, there may be a little bit of this that happened before Joshua died, but basically the context, the sense is Joshua is gone, and this is what is happening. Now, it's interesting, if you look at the scriptures, that's not an unusual beginning for a book. Exodus begins with the death of Joseph. Joshua begins with the death of Moses. Joshua takes takes command. Uh, Judges takes place then with the death of Joshua. First Kings takes up with the death of David. Uh, and not least of which, what we learn from that is often what seems like uh, an end is often the opportunity for a new beginning, a fresh start. The principle is that though the servants die, the kingdom continues. You know, our, our, our help is in the name of the Lord, not... Uh, uh, whoever our uh, theological hero of the moment might be, and the Lord continues. Uh, I remember um, growing up, the, the the pastor who had been uh, at our church through the 70s and the early 80s, uh, he left, he resigned, he was leaving, and I had this feeling of doom, like, what's going to become of our church? Uh, well, great things were ahead for our church. He was a great pastor, uh, but it wasn't the end, it was simply a new beginning. Even when Jesus himself left, he said, it is to your advantage that I go away. Uh, and so this book begins with the death of Joshua, uh, of course, for the people, for people who had grown up under Joshua, experienced Joshua's leadership, probably was a time of doubt, a time of fear, concern, what would, what would happen next. And it's in that context that it's still the Lord, whether it's Joshua or somebody else, it's the Lord who is at work, who is giving them the land. We also see the help of the Lord in the context of Israel working together. There's unity here. You see it in verse 3. The Lord says, Judah is to go up. And verse 3, Judah says to Simeon, his brother, come up with me that we might fight against the Canaanites and I'll go with you into the territory that the Lord gives to you. And so Simeon went with them. There's, there's mutual cooperation and, and support among the tribes. And that's a good thing. See it again. Uh, in, in verse 17, Judah went up with Simeon and his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. And again in 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. And so you see this, that the tribes are, are working together, supporting each other, helping each other. You say, well, that's good. It is good, but it's significant. Because the story of the book of Judges, among other things, is a story of the fracturing of that unity. Because we're here, they're working together to, to help each other get established in the promised land. By the end of the book, they're at war with one another. So we read that. Don't miss that, that detail. It's significant. It's important. There's this unity there that by the end of the book is pretty much gone. Uh, and, but that's, that's the context of the Lord working. There's, they're pulling together here. And certainly, uh, you know, a lesson in that, uh, of, of the need as believers. Uh, that we support one another, we work together, we don't fight against one another, but we do what we can to uh, to serve one another. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 17 and following, uh, even, even to comprehend how much God loves us is not an individual thing. Notice he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
If we're going to know the love of Christ like we should, even that requires that we are together, together with all the saints, that we know that in cooperation with one another. Now, as you look at chapter one, there, there's some sort of some snapshots of some of the kinds of things that were going on, uh, some anecdotal kinds of things that are included here that kind of give us a picture, uh, maybe on a more personal level or on a smaller scale, the kinds of things that were taking place. There was, uh, by Israel's uh, possession of the land, there was the, the serving out of justice. Um, in, in, in a way, it's kind of sad, but it's also a little bit humorous, the way Adonai Bezek is portrayed in, in verse 5. Uh, they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and toes, and he's pretty philosophical about it. He, he just says, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes. They used to pick up scraps from under my table. As I've done, so God has repaid me. Uh, just sort of uh, a picture of poetic justice there, and he, he seems not entirely surprised by this turn of events. That, uh, But notice notice how it's put. God has repaid me. Uh, divine justice. Earlier, as we prayed, uh, someone mentioned uh, justice being served out against the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks. Well, uh, he recognizes God's justice in what was happening here. By the way, kind of a sidebar. There are many people who are troubled by the orders given to Israel and, and what they did to go into Canaan and to under orders to wipe out the people there. Some people are, are very troubled by that. In fact, uh, Paul Copan, who uh, he and his wife Jackie and their children used to worship here at Old Peachtree before he went down to uh, Florida, has written a book that's come out recently. I think it has come out, maybe not come out yet, called Is God a Moral Monster? And it's on this question uh, of God and what he commands in the Old Testament, particularly toward the Canaanites. Now, you have to understand that where there is often concern about that, the Canaanites are sort of portrayed as this innocent people there dwelling, and suddenly God orders genocide against them uh, by Israel. Well, innocent they were not. And if you read in, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, uh, you learn some of the practices of the Canaanites, and they were utterly vile, wicked people in their paganism, uh, in their sin, in fact, God held off at one point because he said the wickedness of the Canaanites has not yet reached its full measure. But when Israel went in, yes, it was for the purpose of providing this land to Israel, this home to Israel that he had promised. But incidentally, Israel was God's instrument of justice against the wickedness of the Canaanites. And both purposes were at work, which, by the way, you later see uh, Assyria and Babylon used as God's instrument of judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel, and Babylon on the southern kingdom of Israel. We'll study about that in Jeremiah. Uh, when Israel themselves became like the Canaanites, and worse because of their sin against light, uh, that God uses even these pagan nations as instruments of judgment against Israel. But that's what's happening here. Uh, there is this justice as Israel goes in, certainly to take the land God had promised, but also as an instrument of justice and judgment on the Canaanites. And Adonai Bezek perceives that. As I have done, so God has repaid me. A uh, little hint of romance, verses 11 through 15. Uh, Caleb, of course, of Numbers fame, uh, he and Joshua and the other spies who went in and spied out the promised land, uh, Joshua and Caleb alone coming back with a report that, yes, the inhabitants of the land are mighty. 
Uh, their cities are big, they're tough, they're bad, but we can take them with God's help. And uh, Caleb is uh, now, uh, now left after Joshua has died. And uh, Caleb receives the land of Hebron for his, uh, uh, for his, for his faithfulness. But this incident uh, here, Caleb says, whoever attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Oxen, my daughter, for a wife. So a little reward there. Um, we assume that Oxa is, is worth fighting for. So uh, a volunteer steps forward, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, uh, son of, it's, it's actually his nephew, uh, and he has it. He captures it. And so he receives Oxai's daughter as a wife. And uh, where they were was in the Negev. Since you sent me in the land of the Negev, which we talked about recently being the southern arid desert region, that's why she says, give me also the springs of water. And the water there in the Negev, very little. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Uh, there's also some intrigue, some spy action taking place in chapter 1, verses 22 and following. Uh, the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel, uh, spies, again, verse 24, the spies see a man coming out, and they ask him for help, and they say, well, if you help us, we'll, we'll protect you. Uh, kind of a little bit of an echo of what happened uh, with Rahab when Israel was initially going into the promised land, and that's what happens. So it looks good. Good start, victory, God is there, he's working, the tribes are cooperating, they're taking and possessing the land that has been given. They're doing all the things they're supposed to be doing. There was that little hint of something's amiss with the chariots of iron. But then we move into a passage uh, where things really begin to go downhill quickly. And the second second section here is failure. Uh, failure through their disobedience. It's simply not doing what God said. Even there, there, there are some, some good things. Uh, there is some success. They do dominate the Canaanites. They put them, it says, four times into forced labor. Verse 28, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. Verse 30, they became subject to forced labor. Uh, verse 33, uh, they became subject to forced labor for them. Uh, verse 35, they became subject to forced labor. Canaanites are subdued. Israel seems victorious. They put them to forced labor. They became their slaves. But what's wrong? They fail. Because the point was not to subdue them and force them into slavery. The point was to eradicate them from the land completely. And that they failed to do, And in fact, you, you read of this failure to the point where you come to the Danites in verse 34, and the Amorites actually push the Danites back. It's, it's a reverse conquest. They lose ground. And you hear that, that steady drumbeat seven times. That expression did not drive out. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheehan. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, that they did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the Canaanites, the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 32, they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 35, the Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres although they were subject to forced labor. They did not drive them out. Now, what is this point? 
His point isn't to just be rhetorically tedious. The point is to level an accusation. The point is this passage brings a charge against Israel. That they did not do what God told them to do. They were disobedient. They did not do what the Lord told them to do. Why did the Lord not want the Canaanites there? Well, in part, it was judgment on them. A judgment that did not go as far as it was supposed to. But God's main concern was with the spiritual well-being of his people. In Exodus 23:33, the Lord says, They shall not dwell in your land unless they make you sin against me, for if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. The Canaanites in their midst, subdued though they may be, still practiced their pagan religions and became a spiritual cancer to Israel. Living among the Canaanites would eventually lead to, lead to worshiping with and like the Canaanites. That's why God told them to drive them out, to get rid of them, not to live in their midst. They didn't drive them out. Forced labor, yes, but they did not drive them out. You know, it's possible to show all the marks of success and yet not please God. The great danger. It's, it's, it's possible to have an appearance of obedience because there's partial obedience and yet God is not pleased because there's not full obedience. Remember much later when Israel finally had a king that Judges, by the way, seems to be making a case for to its readers because of that statement. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The need for central leadership, the need for a king, is, is, is one of the arguments that Judges as a book makes for its later readers. And Saul becomes the first king. But Saul wound up forfeiting his position and his family's position because of his partial obedience. He was to go up against the Amalekites, and Samuel encounters him. He hears all these animals and sees all this going on. And Samuel says, The Lord sent you on a mission, Saul, and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them till they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? He was supposed to destroy it. Instead, he took it. Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. Number one, he's defensive and argumentative. I've gone on a mission from which the Lord, on which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, uh, Amalek and I devoted the Amal- Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Second, he passes the buck. Third, he puts a nice-sounding spiritual reason on his disobedience. First of all, you're wrong, Samuel. I did what God said. Second, I didn't keep it. The people did. And third, we did it so we could serve the Lord. Disobedience in order to please God, in order to serve the Lord. That doesn't make much sense, does it? Partial obedience is disobedience. Israel sort of possessed the land, but God was not pleased with what they had done. And he confronts them in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And here is their opportunity. It's an opportunity for 
repentance. There was success. That success slid and degenerated into failure. Emphasize failure. They did not drive them out. And then in chapter 2, the Lord confronts his people. Verses 1 through 3. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you into the land I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. And you are to make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Break down their altars. God said, I will not break my covenant with you. Question is, will Israel break its covenant with the Lord? You have not obeyed my voice. The answer is yes. Remember what Joshua said in the end of Joshua when he challenged them, who will serve the Lord? And they said, we will serve the Lord. He says, you can't serve the Lord. Joshua knew all too well the sinfulness of people. How prone we are to depart. How prone we are to wander. He said, you can't serve the Lord. Apart from God's grace. Well, that's exactly what plays out. You've not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, which is what had been happening earlier in chapter 1, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Now, how does Israel respond? Well, to their credit, they respond better than Saul did much later. They respond in the first place place with tears. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. This loud weeping, this wailing, this lamenting. In fact, it was so significant, they named the place Weeping. Actually, Weepers, which is what Bochim means. They named it for their crying, for their tears. The place where they wept, Weepers, Bochim. What else did they do? Well, they offered sacrifice. That's all sort of they did that too with what they were supposed to destroy. They offered sacrifice. Verse 5, they called the name of that place Bochim and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And? And and what? You see, it ends somewhat open-ended. It looks a little bit encouraging. They're, They're weeping. They sacrifice. But why? What is the cause of this reaction? I've been reading through uh, Ted Tripp's book, um, Whiter Than Snow, in uh, chapter 10, which I actually read this morning. Uh, He talks about the difference between, uh, the difference between, basically between remorse and repentance. About being sad that you disappointed yourself, you disappointed others, you failed to meet your own standards, uh, you, you've been caught and are embarrassed. The difference between that and real repentance. And it basically comes down to this. Are you sorry for the behavior or are you sorry for your heart? In other words, are you repenting simply of behavior or are you repenting for the sinfulness of your heart that gives rise to the behavior? It may seem a subtle distinction, but it's a vital distinction because it goes to the very, no pun intended, heart of the matter and where the Lord works on us in the, in the deepest ways. Well, we're driven to look at Israel here. We're driven to look at ourselves and say, what is going on here? Are they just sad that they disappointed the Lord? Are they sort of feeling guilty that the Lord has to come and confront them? What's the case with their hearts before the Lord? 
see the message of the Lord to them, the message of the Lord to us is exactly as Joel, prophet Joel, would voice it so much later in Joel 2.13. Rend your hearts, not your garments. The book of Judges will show which Israel was rending. It's garments or it's heart. What about you? Let's pray. Father, we would not be disobedient to you. Father, we would give you our hearts in, in full devotion. But Lord, we recognize we need your grace to do that. We recognize our sinful impulses and how wayward we can be and easily deceived. Father, we pray uh, that we would pursue you, that our repentance would be genuine, and that, Father, with your help, we would triumph in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.